Hi, welcome to the Artificial Intelligence, Machine Learning and Data Science Weekly Podcast. My name is Kwan Hong, or you can call me KH. In this show, I'll be talking to AI, ML and data science practitioners around the region. In each episode, I will dive into relevant and interesting AI, ML topics, where you get to know more about topics ranging from AI, ML adoption, best practices, and tips and tricks to be a better AI, ML data science practitioner. Hi, welcome to another episode of AI, ML and Data Talks Weekly Podcast. In today's episode, I'm accompanied by a friend and an ex-colleague where we used to work together at MMU, Multimedia University in Malaysia, as well as he's, a, he's actually a frequent contributor to the Malaysia R user group events, Ui Wen Fung, who is currently working as a data scientist in the field of healthcare and cancer genomics in Singapore, as a guest for the show. Hi, Wen Fung. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Kwan Hong. Thanks for having me today. <laughs> okay. Long time no see, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I said a while, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as usual, uh, we'll start the show by giving you, uh, asking you to actually give a brief introduction about yourself, such as about your childhood, maybe about your education background, and also your career path to be a data scientist. Yeah, sure, yeah. So um, I, actually, so I pick up uh, programming since uh, I, I was 14 years, 14 to 15 years old with a bunch of friends who share the same interests. So I, I quite uh, consider quite lucky is because uh, having knowing a group of friends who have same same interests, then uh, the, the journey of learning programming becomes uh, very fun. So we used to have many different tiny problems, uh, chit-chatting, exchanging ideas, and even like uh, exchanging programming books because uh, buying books during that time was quite expensive and we spent out of our own pocket money. Yeah. So uh, Having this uh, programming at an early age, uh, it really gave me some advantage to access to some of the um, problems and uh, to help me to train my problem solving skills. So in the end, I chose to um, specialize uh, my undergrad degree uh, in MMU, uh, specializing in software engineering. But there's one turning point uh, during I mean, my uh, early age is that I came across a book, uh, but I can't really remember the, the title now, is that it, it talks, at the, at, the, at the end of the chapter, it talks about biotech. That really intrigued me a lot um, into how bio, understanding biology changed the way uh, we, we look at the disease and also treat the disease. So that let me think about uh, whether my knowledge in software engineering and programming could help uh, treatment to be better, or how do we bring a better care to patients? And to really solve this problem, perhaps uh, had to drill down into the so-called the binary code of our body, which is the cell, and inside the cell, it has so-called the ATCG, the uh, DNA. So there is a time where uh, I started my journey in bioinformatics, or at the time they call, they used the term computation biology and bioinformatics called interchangeably. So I started a project uh, with my supervisor in MMU at the time to explore this area. And that time was very new and very hard to get resources up in this area. Yeah, but I was lucky enough that uh, shortly after I started my my. Uh, so-called my master by research in multimedia university in Cyberjaya. I actually received a scholarship 
to pursue my study in bioinformatics in Italy and also in UK. So that allows me to really deep dive into this area of bioinformatics, not just to learn about uh, the informatics part, but also the biology part. And I think uh, I was grateful to have this opportunity to attend my courses in molecular biology, biochemistry, to really understand how does this uh, biology in the cell works and what, how does, how do these, like, for example, DNA, the genes, the protein, the interplay of these different components really shapes the functions of cells and then broader and become tissues and organs and so on. And this is a very fascinating area. And during that time was emerging is mainly because uh, I think in early 2000, uh, the whole human genome is only sequenced and at a very expensive cost. And very few people actually have the so-called luxury to really interrogate the so-called uh, the structure of the cells or the identity of the cells in a such, uh, how to say, detailed manner. So I think uh, in the early years of like 2000, it's like people kind of using like microarray, which is a, a, a kind of like a matrix with a different kind of like tech to really uh, uh, to probe or to investigate the state of your DNA or maybe like RNAs. So only when it come to like uh, 2010, uh, sequence, the cis sequencing technology uh, is emerging, although it's very expensive, but it gives our scientists a greater details about the structure of the DNA, or the composition of the DNA. Then that is time where people start looking into um, the DNA sequences and also to compare between the healthy DNAs and sick DNA. And using that, uh, using that uh, technology and with the informatics tools, uh, people can understand about how, what are the changes at the DNA level could uh, lead to potentially associated diseases. Using such association with maybe uh, more, more information, more data, they could try to hypothesize whether it has any causality effects or not. Yeah. Okay, it's quite interesting. So that, that's where you actually, after you finish your master in bioinformatics, so you actually straight away jump into become a data scientist in the in the area of this uh, uh, related to this DNA or what genomic science. Oh yeah. So after after I completed my study, I actually came back to NMU. I, I, I my office was just opposite office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that time, um, besides teaching at NMU, I also maintain uh, my research relationship with my supervisor in Italy. So I do have a collaboration with him to continue the work that I did for my master thesis. Then uh, eventually it kind of like, uh, the findings were published in a scientific journal in 2011. Yeah, so that time people don't see bioinformaticians as data scientists. And in fact, data scientists, this term has not really emerged. Yeah, so, but we deal with uh, quite a lot of data, perhaps uh, if it is not, if, if not as much as what the telco are generating now, but at least in terms of the size, uh, I, I think in terms of the dimensions, like for example, human genome has about 22,000 genes. And, and, and given this dimension, it can be a, a, a few or maybe many combinations, right, that can be contributed to diseases. So that's, I think this combinatorial uh, 
problems itself is a very complex problem where uh, it requires uh, much more data to really to understand it, to understand what is the underlying factor that drive disease, for example. Okay. So I think uh, has a benefit for all the listeners. What, what's the DNA? So DNA is actually basically stands for a, a molecule, molecule co uh, composition of, also stands for uh, dioxyribonucleic acid, which is actually basically our genetic material uh, in every living being. So basically, when we, when for, any, for any living organism, we actually pass our genetic material from one um, a, a species to another species, from one generation to another generation, is actually through the DNA. So I think that's, so I think, uh, so since you mentioned about DNA sequencing, what's DNA sequencing actually? Oh, so DNA sequencing is a, is an kind of an operations to really take in your, uh, how to say, the DNA, it's like inside the cell, you have a nucleus and then a nucleus that is capsule all your like chromosomes, right? The chromosomes that you further unfold, it, it consists of a series of like letters, yeah, letters then like, these letters are like four letters like A, T, C, and G. So of course, uh, when doing this, uh, we know that uh, this human genome has about uh, like, you consist of let's say 22, 22 plus X, Y, like 22 chromosome plus X chromosome plus Y chromosomes. So in total, there's about say like 3 billion characters. Yeah, so of course, given today's technology, I think, uh, it is not possible to release one shot to sequence the entire genome or entire chromosome. So they actually like use the lab scientists, they will use so-called some chemical like, like scissors to, to cut it, these, uh, these chromosomes into a very small fragments, then pump through the, the DNA sequences to really read what are the, what are the letters uh, from each of the fragments. Then using that, that it will pump to the uh, so-called a computer or the uh, hard drive. But of course, uh, it doesn't read only once and, and when it will fit into the DNA sequencer itself, uh, it is not just like one copy, but there may be like thousands or million copies there. So, so meaning that if you look at one location of your chromosome, for example, it may be sequenced for say like 20, 30 times. So this is not a waste, but it really helps you to understand um, whether this, this particular uh, location, we, we call it like a uh, locus uh, in a biological term, that this is indeed an A or uh, this is indeed a T. Because mm -hmm. uh, we know that uh, these, uh, how to say, the, the devices, they may have some errors, right? In order to reduce the error, you better to sequence uh, for the same location many times, and then you see, ah, it is consistently A. Mm -hmm. uh, if there is a change, then, then you need to see uh, whether this change is really not due to the machine error, but it's something, a real change that could, we call it mutation. mutation yep. Yeah. Then, then, then the next question is ask whether this mutation, is it uh, uh, a mutation that will cause disease or the mutation that, that doesn't cause disease? Or is mm -hmm. this a variant that introduced in different populations? Okay, I think uh, I think since we have watched so many Marvel movies, we we, we watch a lot of this uh, human with a mutation in in the gene. So I think we are we are we are quite interested in that. And talking about the DNA, so you said we have the this A, G, C, and T, in it, which is the four bases, just combination of these four proteins, which is aden adenine, which is A, 
guanine, which is G, cytosine, which is C, and thymine, which is T. And just because of these four bases, it combined the, the, the combination of them will form a sequence of DNA. And then that can express into many things in our gene, for example, our organ, or, 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 or the color of our hair, the eye color, all is actually expressed in these four, sequ four sequences. So how, I'm just very curious, from a person who has been dealing with all these DNA sequences, so is your data is always combination of these four characters all in a very long sequence? Or is there another way that how data scientists look at this data? Oh, okay, that, that's a very good question. So DNA is just a so-called the, the first, the first layer or the basic or the building blocks of uh, the, the so-called the, the, the cells uh, and that define uh, the identity. So uh, you can treat it as a so-called like recipe, right? Recipe, DNA is a type, a series of string here is a recipe to, 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 to produce uh, different uh, protein. So as I mentioned just now that uh, our, our human genome is like consists of uh, 3 billion characters, right? But it doesn't mean that all these 3 billion characters are used to generate proteins. So it's only about like 3% of the genomes uh, are used to generate proteins or we call it uh, their gene. So, so, so when talking about gene, uh, we, the gene can be further transcribed or expressed. It become um, RNA. Then the RNA will be translated to protein, which is something functional. Yeah. So this is sort of like, maybe like I will say uh, in a in a simplified term, we call protein as something functional and it's a so-called actual product. Yeah. So it has to go through from uh, DNA, which is a recipe that define where the genes are, and then after that, there are some machinery to transcribe. The, the gene we call then it become like we have gene expression like it express. Then after that, the, the, the gene expression it become already a so called like intermediate product that will be translated to uh, protein. Yeah. So so the, the, the study here there are multi layers and usually me you may heard about this term called multi omics. Yeah. So so when we when when something like a gene being transcribed. And express become RNA. We call it transcriptomics, right? Become transcripts. Yeah. Then when when this transcript being translated to proteins, we call proteomics. Yeah. So so this is like you have at least you can see like DNA transcripts and protein three layers. But um, there are some other uh, dimension as well. Uh, people like uh, epigenetics, meaning that modification not at the DNA. But uh, the DNA actually like wrapped around by some protein, and the modification of the protein that uh, that being around but surrounded by the DNA may also change the behavior of uh, the cells. I mean, in a in a in a layman, yeah. Okay. So 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 there are many. So looking at these different dimensions, it generates different type of data. So to respond to your earlier question is that, are they only just ATCG? I think it depends. If you're looking at this at a genomics level, then it looks at the, at the ATCG, the change of the characters. But if you look at the transcriptomics uh, level, uh, we, we usually look at so-called signal. Uh, in, a, in another term, we, we kind of look at the so-called intensity. So like how, how bright maybe, in a, maybe in, a, in a spot may represent 
the level of uh, the expressions. So, so if, a, if, a, if a gene is being turned on, meaning that you would expect to see a brighter spot there. So by looking at this intensity, which eventually translates to some values, then we analyze those values and see whether, uh, for example, this spot in a healthy individual is it brighter than those uh, individuals who are sick or dimmer. Then using these uh, correlations, uh, we try to understand whether uh, there's any such association between the changes of the genes and or the disease. Okay, so so in is, is this kind of related to okay, which is coming to my next question? Is it kind of, is this the, the expression of gene turning on? Is it then how bright is it? Is it something related to my next question? Is it is it because uh, uh, I, I know that you actually said uh, you have done on cancer genomic. So is it related to what we call the, the cancer or tumor marker? Because uh, we know nowadays uh, whenever we, people go for body checkup, they actually, actually uh, they also try to measure or try to uh, see how much of cancer marker, uh, how high is a biomarker in, in their body. Then they can actually maybe make a, make a uh, from there, then they, maybe they can actually check whether, whether they're high risk or low risk of cancer. Is, is, is that the same thing? Uh, I think I think the 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 marker test that we had in the in the lab, uh, I mean that we do during the blood test is, I think it's a measure of the protein whether mm. there's such protein uh, presence or not. So th that is not about the DNA, not the DNA here. Yeah. So so they they, they are like some some sort of like diagnostic panel where people like doctor or maybe the surgeon will take. Uh, like uh, a, a tissue, an extracted tissue, or cut, cut maybe a slice of your organ, like maybe a liver, right? Biopsy, right? Yeah, yeah, biopsy, yeah. yeah. Right. So, so they will, they will go, they will do the test by, by sequencing the, the DNA profile of your, your liver. Then they will see that, oh, is there any um, changes in your DNA, for example, with respect to the reference? Then, of course, I mean, given, given there are so many uh, scientists have actually studied, for example, the, the liver cancer, right? Then there will be a set of uh, so-called mutation to look at. Uh. So if, for example, if they see that, oh, there's some changes in this uh, particular uh, location, right? Then they may suggest that uh, it may be a certain type of tumor or maybe at which grade of the tumor, for example. Okay. So, yeah, so... Biopsy is one way where you can actually get a sample of the cell, then you can go back and do the, the like you say, the DNA sequencing. I also see that some people, uh, there are a couple who are just, you know, the, 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 the spouse has just got pregnant, and then they also try to do some sort of uh, what we call a health check or health test of the embryo. Uh, is it something that is also related to DNA? Yeah, yeah, I think that's all so-called the prenatal screening. I think they want to see whether uh, they, they, I think it carry, I'm not too sure whether it's DNA or, or, or proteins, uh, but uh, somehow I think it's DNA. Uh. So it's like they, they want to see whether it's like kind of like have a sign of like Down syndrome mm -hmm. or some other, yeah. other early sign that they want to decide whether they want to do abortion or not, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so sorry, we go so quite deep into the medical medical science already. <laughs> anyway, uh, coming back to be a, a data scientist, so normally for a person who are in data science, let's say uh, I would like to do genomics data, uh, related to bioinformatics related to data science, what will be my daily workflow job will look like? Uh, I mean, I, I'm sure I, I, I've, 
from a perspective of a data scientist, first thing is where do I get my data? I, I, I'm, I'm sure if I'm an AI engineer or a machine learning engineer, I will go for Kaggle or I go for the UCL, UCL, uh, UCI, that, uh, this uh, database for data available for machine learning training. And then there are quite a number of data available in GitHub. I mean, for software engineering, for AI or data science, I think there are plenty of data out there. I'm just curious if I'm a data, science, uh, data scientist in genomics or I'm somebody working in bioinformatics, where do I get my data? And, and also, I think it's quite specialized, specialized, isn't it? Because like you say, you, you actually know a lot of chemistry, you quite know a lot of biology and interaction between all the cells and everything. So is there something necessary for, for people who want to start in this area? Um, I think I think it depends on, on which area uh, or what kind of findings you want to get, what is the outcome that you want to achieve. Uh, I think there are maybe at least two. Okay, number one is something that what uh, you mentioned that uh, you a person uh, equipped with the science knowledge is eager to uh, crack the problems using uh, existing machine learning tools or whatever. So that required the, the problem statement to be clearly defined and also the data set to be available. So I think in that sense, Kaggle, uh, like, or maybe another similar to Kaggle, I think we call Dreams Challenge. Uh, will be very uh, suitable because the problem statement is there. They have a sort of label data sets and so on for you to really solve the problems. So another uh, option uh, is another track, I would say that is really, you, you really don't start with uh, the, the data sets and the problem is unclear. So as a bioinformatics, which I used to work uh, in the role is that but the first question to ask is like, what is the question? What we want to solve or what is a sort of the pinpoint or things that people have not addressed? Yeah, so that requires a lot of like read, readings on the literatures to really understand what is the directions in the field. Then once the problem statement is kind of like being crafted, uh, it may not be necessary or um, 100% true, then, then hypotheses start coming out. Then the next question is that how do we want to validate this hypothesis? Um, there are a few ways and with different level of cost. So one, one way is to tap on existing data sets. So I think you may mention that before is that uh, you can tap on those published data sets, maybe in the uh, gene expression of Vivas, the GEO, where uh, scientific researchers used to publish their, their data sets to this uh, repository before, uh, I mean, it's together with their publication. So you can tap on those data sets and most of the time uh, you can download the raw data and also the process data. Yeah, depends on which, which one fits to your work. Then another way is, uh, another way to get the data is really to spend money to generate the own data. And I think money is not just the, the, the concern. I think the other one is the samples. Where do you get those samples? Do you want to get samples from um, humans or patients? Or do you want to get these samples maybe from like cell culture or cell lines, which I think you can culture it in the lab and then you just harvest and do your experiments, then you get your data. Yeah, so every, each, you, either you get your, your data from humans, real humans, or even in, from mouse and or from the cell lines. I mean, 
each of them have their own strength, advantage, and also limitation. Yeah, so with your own data, I think it probably also helps you to address some of the questions that are very specific uh, to your, so far to your topic of research. Yeah, but tapping on the public data set, it helps you to validate your hypothesis quickly, although it may not be very accurate, but it gives you a sense of whether you are in the right track or not. Okay, so as we know that uh, in the in in the in the current uh, latest uh, people, uh, interest in uh, this combination of technology and biology, we have something what we call gene editing, the CRISPR gene editing. Um, mm. I, 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 because it's very interesting to me because gene is because there are now people who are, have some knowledge about uh, biology. And then there are some knowledge of technology, especially like a, like a programmer, where they can actually now program gene. And then, uh, and, and then there's a recent, recently I've seen that uh, even uh, there are events like Hackathon, which is no longer just about no programming in the, uh, in the normal way, but we're talking about gene hackathon. We actually try to see who can come up with the best way to edit the gene and then come up with new, new, new product or new protein, whatever. Uh, so it, it, do you, do you think this is the, the next direction of, uh, uh, I think it's, it's like an evolution of your bioinformatics? Yeah, I think, I think CRISPR is a very, I would say it's a very good tool for the biologists to, to explore, um, to explore this uh, biology in a, in a new, in a new way. La. Why I say so is because, uh, for example, you have, uh, you, you, you found that uh, this, this particular mutation are likely to change uh, or likely to lead to a disease, for example. But you're not you're not sure, right? Then um, before CRISPR, I'm, I'm not very sure whether that's possible. Is that how is like if you you get this CRISPR technology, you can actually uh, tell the so-called the tool to modify a particular uh, location. And yeah, and this is according to what you want. Yeah. So that allows you to really test hypothesis that oh, the change, the change of this DNA, for example, will really uh, lead to a, a so-called uh, um, observation. It can be like some morphology change or something like that. So it so that is something that uh, what Sometimes I when we submit our so-called our, our scientific journals to for review, right? Reviewer may ask, is like if you found that there are strong association between the change of I mean this mutation with the disease, how how are you going to prove this? So usually your biology, what we do if they can afford in terms of the time and the money, I think they will perform this experiment to really change that location to show that yes, it is indeed maybe like it will. After changing the, the, the cell replicate faster, which is maybe a sign of like can forming uh, leading to cancers. Yeah, then with, with this, then they can convince the reader that yeah, this is indeed the mutation that caused the disease. It, it sounds very promising, but uh, we, we, we will never know whether the change from one spot 
will affect the overall overall the, the whole system because sometimes you might see there's an improvement on there but actually it will actually affect the whole especially like now we're talking about uh, we try to change the gene of uh, of a certain uh, species like mosquito then we release this mosquito into the environment it might help to re reduce uh, uh, malaria or something like that but we don't know whether the the because of this mosquito is not reproducing then it will actually affect the whole ecosystem we're not sure on that so same like same like in our body we might be able to improve certain part function of a cell but we will not know whether it will, it will actually affect the overall ecosystem of our body we never know about that yeah so so i think i think your your concern is valid la. so uh, we we also not sure whether this effect is really a real effect or is it a bystander effect and and i think many of the observation is still so-called remain in the so-called research and it's yet to be validated maybe by multiple uh, researchers in the community. Mm -hmm. yeah, but definitely this is a very good tool that to advance our understanding uh, in this molecular biology. Okay. Yeah, yeah so as, you, as I know that uh, one, one of the hottest topic is to people jumping in to form a startup company uh, related to AI and healthcare. But uh, as we know, there are many people who are interested, but there are even you no know, big company like uh, IBM has this Watson and Google has this DeepMind that actually try to do a lot in healthcare, but still not very progressing well. What do you think is a major problem of advancing AI in healthcare healthcare area? Yeah, uh, I think I think one possible roadblock, maybe this is my opinion, uh, is that mm -hmm. maybe access to good quality of data because we know that I think although data are a lot generated by different labs around the world, right? The quality wise may differ from labs to lab. Yeah. And the quality, the quality depends on um, the, uh, uh, an array of factors. Uh. So it can be the samples quality very upstream, uh, the way people handle it, and also the, the sequencing. I mean, is anything wrong? The, the, the chemistry inside of the machines and how people handle it downstream. So there are many factors really affect this. Um, quality of data and this information are not really well captured or uh, detailed in the submission. So it's also very hard to, to normalize or to calibrate with some other data sets that you can obtain from um, other sources. So one, one problem I, I face when I work in this area is that um, if I want to apply uh, machine learning right, in this area, particularly in a supervised learning manner, it is quite challenging in the way that uh, where do I gain the labeled data? How do I train it? So many times, uh, uh, many including myself, I use uh, unsupervised learning. So clustering method is my favorite where I have to use this uh, information, data points that I collect from multiple patients, for example, perform clustering to see whether is there any uh, patterns, I mean, maybe a group of genes that are clustered together. And then using that, we try to map that to functions and then to see whether is there any similarity, yeah, something like that. Yeah, I, so how, how about um, how about uh, this uh, skewed data? I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of, even you have label data, you, you probably have like 90% which is no disease or no not, not showing any symptom. And then you have only 10% which showing symptom. I'm sure that that's also another major problem when you want to have a because majority of medical data 
people are having a certain sickness is about 10 to 20 percent only and then you have about 80, 80 to 90 percent which is no sickness is, is, is that, that would be another problem for you isn't it? yeah yeah i think i think the i think definitely is like the so you, i mean from the data side of view is like uh imbalanced data set is one thing uh, but also to have uh, a complete data set for each single individual is also very challenging because uh it's not just about the cost, but also about the way you accept. So again, to give an example, uh, a patient who, or who is willing to maybe to let you to take some a sample from maybe from his liver for sequencing, for example, right? Then this data may be sequenced and maybe sit in a, uh, a research lab. But the medical history of a patient may be reside in the medical system. And how do how do a data scientist to access to this both, both information and then link it together and understand about the disease progression? Uh, that is a challenge. Yeah. So, and we also know that this uh, medical history, medical data is, is very sensitive. Yeah, it's privacy uh, concern, is it? Yeah, privacy concern. So, in terms of the data governance side, it's another challenge and uh, many of them like, dispute over this. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I can see that that's a kind of one of the common problem. So for for a technology company like Google or IBM that jump into healthcare, where they do not have the control of uh, the, the data being obtained and then the labeling of data, that could be another major obstacle to 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 overcome before they can actually get a good model to get a good result. Yeah, so I think I think big company like Google they may prefer to partner with the hospitals to work together. So Google bring in the technology and then the hospital bring in the data and also their uh, clinical expertise because I think uh, this, this, is, this require a multidisciplinary team to solve the problem together. And you, you require like the clinician, uh, engineers, data scientists, and yeah, even an admin to really put, put all these people together to, to go through the problems and make sense of the data. Yeah, so I think it's a, I think it's a painful, but I think it was also quite a fruitful and enjoyable journey. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a good learning lesson for everyone, uh, especially those those uh, companies they want to go into this area. Yes. Co coming back to the, our current situation, so we are in the pandemic, COVID nineteen. How do you see that COVID impact, uh, the the progress of data science or even AI in the healthcare area? Mm, I think. I think there are a few, uh, I think the COVID definitely uh, accelerated the adoption of, of technology as, and also digitalization. So uh, if you can read the news out there, I think there are people who start uh, looking at this uh, chest X-ray, right? Using machine learning to quickly diagnose patients whether they are severe or mild in uh, pneumonia. And then with that, I think doctors can intervene early and yeah, to, to ensure that, uh, that, I mean, the right patient get the right care. And I, I think recently I came across uh, papers about uh, of a number of research labs in, from different countries. They actually do collaborate by, by using this uh, federated learning, which means that uh, they can still develop machine learning model without sharing their data across because 
I think chest X-ray is also part of the so-called uh, medical, part of the medical records and is quite sensitive. So it is actually quite challenging for, for this type of data to be shared across different countries. And also uh, uh, it requires some sort of like uh, to protect the privacy of patients. So I think the federated learning of this technology which I think introduced in 2017, I think it really helps to break the barrier and drive collaboration across uh, different countries. Yeah. Yeah, I read about the federal learning because it's, a, it's definitely a, a new thing that uh, because more and more people are concerned about privacy. Then the COVID data is also quite sensitive because you do not want to know, let people know that you are part of the data that if it, with, your, with your personal information, it be identified that you actually have a COVID before. That's something that uh, people are very concerned about. And also because AI is actually very data, they always hunger for more data. And the more data, the better to produce better models. But the problem is sometimes the data is actually, it actually reveal more information about, unnecessary information about certain people which is not, not necessarily improving the model itself here. Yeah, I, I think, I think uh, from the privacy aspect, definitely I think individual privacy is very important. Uh, we cannot really, uh, because of we want to advance our understanding, we, we, we treat it with the uh, like, uh, lower like, privacy preserving uh, quality. So I think, I think privacy preserving tech is also emerging to address this gap, especially I think in healthcare, where I think this area involve or exposed to many type of like sensitive information. Yeah. Okay. So uh, listening from your childhood, uh, when you started to you know doing your programming at the age of like 13 or 14 years old, basically you started like a, you are like a hacker, isn't it? you actually doing hacking when you are young. And then you actually move on to, because of one book, you actually move on to you know, biology, informatics, bioinformatics. So let's say now, if anyone out there that is listening, uh, who, are, who, are, who are actually uh, aspire to be something, a data scientist, but also want to contribute in the area of uh, healthcare, what kind of advice you would give to them? Where do they, where do they start? You know? Because I, I'm, I'm sure not many universities offer bioinformatics as a, a degree. They probably they will go to data science or probably they will go into software engineering. But what kind of advice maybe you can give to them? Oh, okay. I'm not sure about advice like that, but I think I can share my experience. So I think uh, being interested in IT or software engineering and bio is, uh, I think will be a rare combination, I would say that. Because I, I feel that people who like programming, usually they don't like bio. Yeah, this is what I heard. And, and, and when I say it, I want to pursue this track. I think some of my friends really give me a very unexpected expression. So yeah, but I think it, to me, it's very, uh, very interesting and fruitful. So I think to, to really keep this moving, uh, I think it also applies to other areas, is that it has to be, I think a person has to be persistent uh, that, uh, to, to learn something. And also, I, I, I still feel that uh, on the job training is the best way to learn because uh, you are, you'll be thrown to, to solve real problems and maybe with constraints. Because I think if, if you kind of stay in the academics or you solve some of the problems that are given in hackathon or whatever, usually uh, they are kind of like 
the data may be have, may have been sanitized, and also you may not have such constraint. So when when we're working in constraint, you may use a very different strategy to solve the problems, and that is how people uh, address problems in a in their daily life. Yeah. So I think that that's a different. There'll be a different experience, and that'll be very useful. Yep. So you know, last time when we are in secondary school, we have people who say they they actually uh, they actually go for bio stream and then they go actually go for the um, uh, physics or math stream because they say that people who actually go for bio stream biology stream is people who like to do a lot of uh, mugging. They like to memorize things. <laughs> they don't really understand the logic behind because they just need to memorize. And then when the people go for maths and physics. These are people who are very, you know, logical thinking. They, 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 they understand things. So for you, I think you are very different because you merge both biology and this technology together. So uh, one part you need to understand uh, reading about biology, uh, understanding how the cell works and memorize how it works, and also at the same time you know, translate that into te te uh, using technology to translate that into a, something that you can actually use data to solve the problem. <laughs> I think there's something quite interesting because. Um, yeah, yeah. It, is, it, is, it is a very unique combination because not many people can do both at the same time. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's combination, but also uh, it's also very hard to do well in both areas. I would say that maybe I'm good in one area, but I'm not so good in another area. So usually when it comes to this uh, making sense of data in, in bioinformatics, uh, I, would, I would try to rely on my my colleague who are specialized in say, for example, cancer biology. So they can make sense much better than I do. So, but uh, what I can help is really, I, I can provide the first card. I think that this is something that makes sense because I think as a, as, as a data analyst, data scientist or whoever would deal with data, uh, we are the first, first line who look at the data and we are the one who get our hands to deal with the data. So we have a good sense of how the, what is data is telling us. And if we have some sort of like the, the language, we understand the language in that area, it helps a lot to, to translate and also not only to translate, but to ask right questions. At least this question can be raised to um, the experts in other areas who can guide you through and find the answers. Yeah, so I think, as, I think in the data science area, Asking the right questions and being curious uh, are very two important uh, quality or skills that, that will help uh, ones to advance in, in this area. Yeah, so similar to what, uh, uh, what Steve Jobs used to say, that always hunger. <laughs> Be yeah, foolish. yeah, that's true. <laughs> hunger. Yeah. yeah, always hunger for new knowledge. I think that's very important. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's one very important trait to be a good data scientist. Always curious and always you know, looking for your creative uh, thinking of how to do problem solving. I think that's, that's, yeah. that's something very critical to be a good data scientist. And also uh, uh, something that uh, not many data, that people out there have, which is a common sense. <laughs> Logit logical uh, common sense thinking, that's also very important to be a good data scientist. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, so I think it's like um, being curious or uh, being hunger is one thing. Uh, but sometimes we, we shouldn't also be too stubborn in something. Uh, this is also something that I encountered before is that I quite hung out with certain things. I said, that why, why this? Why this? And I keep drilling down. And although in some way it is good, but it, it kind of really like, exhausts herself and then it makes you very tired. And in the end, it's really, how to say not fruitful, I would say that. So 
I always, when I come to this situation, I always remind myself like, take, let's, let's take a step back, look at the big picture and see whether what I miss. I think it helped me a lot to think, to rethink what I, what I, uh, what I have not thought about before. And that helps me to move forward. Yeah, so I think we don't have to really always stay in one point, but please be also aware that maybe there are some other areas of territory that we have not explored. And that actually helped help me to like, discover more things and ask more questions. And it may lead to some other fruitful outcome as well. You better know. Yeah, that's definitely good advice because a lot of time, man, people who uh, want to recruit a data scientists who used to work to, to be an academic researcher, they are very afraid because they're very, very afraid to recruit researcher because researcher they tend to want to find a concrete answer and it takes a long time to find a concrete answer. And then, like you would say, that you actually you know they will actually go down a rabbit hole to find certain things that it takes a long time without coming, without producing a, a, a very concrete good result. But in the commercial world, there's not something people can bear. They cannot give you like six months time to do some research without any good result. I think that, that there is a limit to you know, to do research and then there, there is a time we need to come back and then face reality. Is it cannot be done or is, or we have to or, 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 or at least we present the best alternate alternate solution to solve certain problems. That's that's a, that's a, a one mindset that every people who work in the industry should should, should have. Yeah, I think I think I think people in the industry, some of them I will I will say all, they have they have a miss. Um, they misunderstood uh, what uh, academic researchers are doing. So they are not just bookworms, they are not just specializing. Yeah, they are indeed specializing in one area, but it's not something bad because this is the nature of their work. And I think if they're willing to take a step back and look at what is a good thing, I think there are a few good things that uh, uh, academic researchers have. Is that, for example, they have good problem-solving skills because they have been in the research for uh, a few years and they really crack their head to solve some hard problems. Yeah, there is one. I think the second one is that uh, they are quite persistent in what they're doing. So this is something that um, I think people should learn about this quality. And I think researchers in general also quite uh, meticulous because I think in if you're writing like uh, a scientific journal, if you're, if you're putting crack in it, River will show sense it and tell you, hey, this is crap. Yeah, so then, then your whole thing screw up, right? So I think that I, I, will, I, will, I will say that in general, I'm not saying all, it's like in general, I think research committee researchers, they do demonstrate some good capability in, in solving problems and some soft skill that are quite precious. And I think hiring managers should also take into that consideration, although they're really from academics, but there are chances that they can do well in industry solving real problems as well. Okay, I think that's a very good advice from a from a practitioner in the industry for quite some years. Thank you for your time. It was so nice talking to you. I think we have really, really learned a lot from you. I'm really, in this, especially in all this when we talk about DNA, uh, genomes, everything. So thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me tonight. So yeah, I'm really happy to share. Yeah. Thank Hopefully, you, uh, next time I can have more time, more, more interesting stuff to share with, uh, with <laughs> sure, the audience. Sure. sure. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others 
post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. Follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. If you have any comments or recommendations, I will be glad to receive your voice messages. Send me your voice messages via the link in the show notes. To catch all latest episodes, you can follow this show on our website www.aimldatatalks.com or our social media such as Instagram or Twitter with the handler at AIMLDataTalks. Thanks again. I will see you next time.